This week on The Sport Blokes. On this week's show, one of the most significant weeks in NBA history, KKK plus WWE equals not okay, how young's too young for a hole-in-one, and round 14 of the Welcome Back Joe Danaher Football League. Big week. Well, I said big week, Stewie, but it's always a big week this year. It is. As we do at the top of the show, aside from the obvious, because we'll talk about that in a second, what else caught your attention and what'd you miss? Well, what caught my attention this week was finally getting to see the world's toughest race, this Eco Challenge Fiji that's showing on Amazon Prime. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, I cannot recommend it highly enough. The really short synopsis is this. Teams of four race across a 671km track through Fiji across just 11 days. They use a number of forms of transport from hiking, mountain bikes, paddle boards, traditional Fijian boats, and plenty more. I'm not going to spoil anything except for saying that some of the teams were sleeping like an hour a day. And this is just one of the most extreme, extreme sports that you'll ever see. Definitely worth a look. And if nothing else, you get to see the spectacular scenery of Fiji. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a real hot spot at the moment, actually. You've got places around there for Survivor, Bachelor in Paradise, Love Island, a whole bunch of shows. So, But one of the things I really love about this show is usually with reality shows, there's people that you just don't seem to like or enjoy watching in every season. Jeff Varner in Survivor comes to mind. Mm. The entire cast of the 28th season of Amazing Race, which was just these <laughs> annoying social media personalities, which I'm using air quotes on, but there's no one in this show that I've disliked even slightly. It's just one of the best communities you could imagine. So definitely caught my eye. Mm. How about yourself? A tip there for people needing something to watch. Well, in non-sports news, I caught the end of the Black Eyed Peas performance at the VMAs. And uh, let me say, without the assistance of technology... They were very average. Uh, but in the sports even, world... Even with the, the well, yeah, well, we won't get into that. <laughs> in the sports world, Kevin O'Brien, perhaps best known for smashing 116 off 63 in a World Cup win for Ireland against England in the 2011 World Cup in oh, India. I remember that like it was yesterday. Oh, yes, we did enjoy that one, didn't we? Had a lovely knock for the Leinster Lightning in the Interprovincial Series in Ireland, hitting 82 off 37, but it was the placement of one of his sixes in particular that caught my eye. And he may need to call O'Brien himself, being an O'Brien. Of all the cars in the parking lot, he managed to smash his own windscreen. <laughs> what are the odds? They're, they're pretty small. I actually remember one out of New Zealand, though, funnily enough. Jesse Ryder. Oh, yeah. He smashed one leg side and actually managed to hit the rental car from one of the commentators. <laughs> nice. And you could actually hear him. He's like, oh, my car's out there. My car's out there. And it actually zoomed in and it was his car. So, uh, when, was, when was that? Oh, it would have been five, six years ago. Okay, it was, it was a while I remember ago. that one. Yeah. It was just, so it, yeah, it, it has happened before. It's very rare, though. And, of course, they didn't pay for anything. The local Toyota dealership said, oh, yeah, we'll fix you up. Yeah, they did actually. They so had, he's had a big fine. promotional photo of him. Yeah, yeah out of the course front. they did. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what caught my eye. What'd you miss, mate? Well, sadly, pretty much the entire AFL round. Ooh. Yeah, wifey was working all weekend. We had a couple of other prior arrangements. So unfortunately, the only game I got to see in full was the one game I didn't really want to see as an Eagles fan. Oh, so, uh, yes. Yeah, but uh, yeah, about yourself. Well, unfortunately, I gave up on the cats and dogs a bit too early. <sighs> but we'll get to that in the AFL round. Oh, dear. Quick news roundup as we do, Shui. 
Yeah, so we'll start off with something that could very easily have been the bloody hell this week and something that both shocked and utterly disappointed oh, me. disgraceful. Especially with all that's been going on in the world. We spoke a while back in episodes one and two about the possible issues of having virtual fans and the potential for perversity. And We might have actually seen the most disgusting one of the lot when oh. someone registered to show up for the WWE Raw and broadcast a KKK rally, which mm. actually appeared in the second row right in the centre of the ring. I mean, it doesn't need to be said that there's no time and place for that sort of systemic racism, but if there ever wasn't a time for it, now is it. Oh, it's... How the hell did that get through? Like... Terrible. My thought... I mean, I, I I tried very carefully to see if there was anything illegal about it online, and you obviously don't want to be researching the KKK too much, but technically I don't know if it's illegal. I mean... Surely, no, I wouldn't imagine so, but jeez. But surely yeah. something more than a lifetime ban. I mean, yeah, like, I, I mean... For the powers that be in the WWE to miss that is pretty poor. It's disgraceful. It is. It is. Yeah, well, pretty poor is a bloody understatement. Mm. It is disgraceful. Tim Zhu, son of Costa, had an eight-round win over Jeff Horn, but the bout was marred with controversy when his trainer, Glenn Rushton, Horn's trainer, that is, didn't rush to throw in the towel, even though Horn looked done in the fifth round. Various boxing legends, including Jeff Fennick, have slammed the decision, or lack thereof, on Rushton's part, who's come out and said that he asked Horn if he could still go. He didn't answer. And is like a son to him, and he never would have subjected him to anything that he thought he couldn't take. Adam Copland, someone else in Horn's Corner, did, however, call it, and the rest is history. But I think there'll be more to come out of that one. I've got two things for you, Nathan. Now, you did a law degree at university. Oh, geez, put mine on the spot. Is silence a form of acceptance? It is not. It is not consent. Obviously no. not. So this is <laughs> this is just does not work for me. Um, and secondly, is he loving us all? Amen. <laughs> Sorry, that's taken us back a few years. <laughs> uh, well, I did reference Pop-Off Valley Madrop-Off last week. So <laughs> this is true. Get this the Billy true. Birmingham run while we can. Exactly. So moving on to golf news overnight. So world number two, John Rahm. Uh, we mentioned he was the world number one not so long ago, but Dustin Johnson's actually retaken the spot. He actually was taken down by Rahm, though, in the BMW Championship overnight in an insane sudden death playoff. Ram dropped a 66-foot putt practically from the other side of the green. It was nearly another postcode. It was so big. Like, it took that long to get to the hole. People have probably got married and been divorced by the time the ball went in. It was it was so far away. So they both actually finished at four under par. So they went into this playoff, and Ram found the right rough off the tee. Johnson was very lucky to even be on the fairway. He bounced off a tree, so he could have been in right deep diggery-do, mm. as they say. Mm. Johnson put his approach to the middle of the green. Ram basically put his, as I said, to the edge of the green, and he was the only one that found the cut, though. But I tell you what, it was a bit of payback because Dustin Johnson actually sunk a 43-foot putt just to force the playoff on the same hole. So probably two of the craziest putts you'll see in an entire tournament both happening on the last hole. Only five players actually finished the tournament under par. Aussie Mark Leishman finished a disastrous 30 over par. Oh, jeez. Ouch. Was he playing in rain or something? Uh, maybe he had his eyes shut. I'm not sure. <laughs> there were a lot of players that finished. I mean, Tiger Woods was 11 over. Jason Day was 14 over. So wow. a lot of really good players. And I mean, Leishman's brilliant, but yeah, it mm. was a, apparently a very difficult course. Mm, evidently. Lewis Hamilton won the Belgian Grand Prix with Aussie Daniel Ricciardo finishing a tidy fourth. Didn't see it. <laughs> no, nah, <it> looks good. <laughs> I, I saw that Ricciardo had finished fourth. And as soon as I see Hamilton winning, I, yeah. He's just running away. Rinse and repeat. He's just running away with it. It's, yeah. Yep. Or driving away with it, I guess. Indeed, but, yeah, um, yeah. Do you know what, though? It's a relief that there were no near-death experiences yeah, not this over week. the weekend. So yeah, I yeah. guess we'll, we'll take that as, not a, that we know of, anyway. as a big positive. 
from near-death experiences to unfortunately a proper death experience. In the world of horse racing, we have to pay tribute quickly to Sub-Zero, the winner of the 1992 Melbourne Cup, who passed away just shy of his 32nd birthday over the weekend. Sub-Zero was put down at 2.38pm on the Saturday, the same time of day and the same day of the week as his longtime trainer, Graham Salisbury, who tragically passed away on the 20th of June. May they both rest in peace. Mm, yes, indeed. I don't know anything about horses. I imagine 32 years is a pretty good knock. It's pretty, yeah, pretty decent knock, yeah. definitely. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he won the Melbourne Cup when he was four, so he's had a pretty decent time out in the fields. Indeed. But, Stewie, of course, we won't wait any longer. The biggest news of all happened in the NBA, and it wasn't what happened on the court necessarily, but what happened off it. So we've seen protests in sport throughout the years in various different shapes. Some people may remember the famous image from the 1968 Mexico City Games. Australia's Peter Norman played an important part in that. We won't go into it now because we don't have the time. But in the basketball world, the 1964 All-Star Game was nearly cancelled because the players refused to take the court unless some of their demands had been met. And at that stage, they were being paid absolute peanuts and they had the leverage because the game was on television. 1961, a few years prior to that, Bill Russell refused to play in an exhibition game in Kentucky because they weren't being served in restaurants and stuff as black people. So that was fair enough that he would do that. But we had an unprecedented postponement of multiple games in the NBA playoffs after yet another shooting. This time in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Jacob Blake copped seven shots to the back. It is incredible that he survived. He is a paraplegic, I believe, but to have survived those shots at point-blank range is just astonishing. It's it's as much of a miracle as it could possibly be, considering the outcome. And it's just so sad. So Kenosha is a fairly small town, about 50 miles out of Milwaukee, maybe even less than 50 if I'm not mistaken. But he was... And look... He was running to his car, and whenever someone runs, the cops see that as something that requires attention. But hey, tasers. There are other ways you can stop someone. You can shoot them in the leg if you must shoot them, but there was they, no they, need for him to they shoot. They could have tackled him before oh, he even got it, to the it car. It was just terrible. And what makes it even sadder is that his kids were in that car, and so they're going to see that image in their mind's eye for the rest of their lives. And, and, you know, what made it even more kind of egregious was that it took four days for the local authorities to release the name of the officer who did it, Rushton Shesky. He still has not been charged, so we'll see what happens. But that's kind of the context and the scenario in which the players decided, in this case, specifically the players from the Milwaukee Bucks. And they did get dressed. Some of them were even shooting around before the game. But the team decided that given the proximity to their city... And given what they've been trying to fight for when they went back into the bubble, they had no other choice. And I applaud them. Good on them for doing it. And to be honest, I don't think they did have a choice, especially given the names on the back of the jerseys and all the Black Lives Matter protests that have been going on in the bubble already. And obviously you had the situation with Sterling Brown. uh, Yes, I was going to just come to that. Exactly right. So the team's been touched even closer by it when Sterling Brown went to a convenience store at two in the morning. And granted, he did park in a handicapped spot, but they restrained him and put the old knee on the on his neck, which is similar to how George Floyd was yeah. killed. And then there's Breonna Taylor. So there's all these horrible cases of African-American people being killed by police. And, and so the Milwaukee Bucks said enough is enough, and they decided not to take the court. And it was interesting that they happened to be the early game, I believe. So it kind of set off a chain of uh, events that meant that the other games that day were postponed. And indeed, several games were postponed. The Raptors considered not playing game one against the Celtics. 
Uh, there was a big meeting with all the players and important people in the teams that were still remaining in the bubble where they discussed what to do next. Some people like George Hill, who plays for the Bucks, never wanted to go in and play in the first place. He, you know, he again questioned whether or not they should be playing. It's reported that the Lakers and Clippers both actually said, bugger it, let's call it here. But then they allowed everyone to sleep on it. They thought about it more. They've started to think about what are some of the things that we can actually get out of this. And so apparently Andre Iguodala was very vocal and he said, well, guys, we can't just not play and then do nothing and go home and basically enjoy our summer. You know, if we're not going to play, we either need to go to these cities and we need to be leading protests and we need to be on megaphones and on microphones and in front of TV cameras, or we postpone for a few games, draw some more attention to the story and then go back on the court. And apparently it was former President Obama that was hugely... That's right. They spoke to President Obama. The Milwaukee Bucks... uh, Sorry, well, LeBron spoke to former President Obama. The Milwaukee Bucks actually got a a chat with the Attorney General of Wisconsin. They got to talk to them to kind of get an idea of what might happen next. So really brave from these players. You know, they're only 20-something, most of them. Jalen Brown apparently was really vocal and and really just mature beyond his years many people are tipping him to be a future players association president but mike wilborn actually said the threat of leverage can actually be more powerful than action so he thought they should play on and he was glad that they did Uh, and i think that was the right call too but i think that they had to do something because given the black lives matter being on the court given all the messages and given all the protests and things that went on in the bubble i think they had to do something now I mean, God, we could talk, we could spend a whole episode on this and it's so important and it's so prescient and so apt in these times. And, and I thought I'd, I'd maybe just kind of punctuate this with a couple of quotes. So Marcus Smart said, we tried to be peaceful. We tried to kneel. We tried to protest. And for us, we tried to come out here and get together and play this game to get our voices across, but it's not working. So obviously something had to be done. Jalen Brown, who I mentioned before, it's definitely hard to digest or to process how you feel about it. Everything on me was on, was on fire yesterday, waking up to it, to see these people changing the framing of what he did in the past in terms of, well, he was a convicted felon or, well, he had a history of resisting arrest or possibly had a weapon. That is not an unfamiliar framework in this country. We've seen it time and again. That does not constitute or justify the fact that you're shooting someone seven times in the back or killing them at all. Anyone who thinks differently is no friend of mine. And I'm finishing on this one intentionally because I don't know if you saw the footage of Doc Rivers, but it was very powerful, very moving indeed. So this is also in the context of the Republican National Convention going on. Doc said, all you hear is Donald Trump and all of them talking about fear. We're the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. We're the ones that are denied to live in certain communities. We've been hung. We've been shot. And all you do is keep hearing about fear. It's amazing why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. It's really so sad. Like, I should just be a coach. I'm so often reminded of my color. It's really sad. We've got to do better. We've got to demand better. So there's reports of players with survivor guilt. It's it's a really tough time. And we'll mention in a second the Jamal Murray interview after his game six against the Utah Jazz. We must move on because we just have so much to talk about this week. But for those that are interested... Ray McKeeson on the August 28th episode of Bill Simmons podcast really fascinating. He said, in the 235 days this year in the US, 751 people have died at the hands of police. There are police bills of rights, so they're allowed 30 days before an interrogation into any crime. Like, that's more than enough time to get your story straight, and that just reeks of corruption. In Louisiana, they can't even do a, 
anonymous complaint of police brutality, which, you know, of course means that no one would report it because there's fear of retribution. Uh, but also Malika Andrews and William Roden are also excellent on the Low Post podcast about this on August 28th as well. Just a fascinating time and our hearts go out to people far less privileged than us. I, I just want to also wrap this up just quickly with a couple of things as well. I would encourage everyone who hasn't seen the words of Chris Weber and Stan Van Gundy from last Thursday and Chris Paul from this Saturday as well, the emotion, again, that you'll, you'll hear coming out of these guys, the anger, the pain, the exhaustion, the disbelief. It's We've previously said how lucky we are to be so privileged to, to be middle-class white males. Yep. And and we'll never be able to sympathise, and all we can do is, is empathise the best we can. Yep. And I must say, finally, their really brave and, and historical action precipitated a lot of protests and action in other sports. So in tennis, the ATP and WTA tours announced that Thursday's play had been called off. The WA Women's Basketball League also postponed a slate of games on Thursday. I don't know if you saw their shirts. They all wore these white shirts with seven bullet holes with blood running out in the back. Very, very powerful. Very powerful. Several WNBA players spoke incredibly eloquently about it. Uh, Several NFL teams halted training camps. Three Major League Baseballs were called off. The NHL made sure that every team missed at least one game. So, really historic moment, and we love our sport, but some things are far bigger. Amen. So, Stewie, before we get back to the games that started again after the few days of postponement, a few other bits and pieces of news, and unfortunately we start off with a couple of deaths. Yeah, I suppose we've got to start off with Cliff Robinson, an 18-year pro in the league across a number of teams, so Portland, Phoenix, Detroit, Golden State, and New Jersey. Passed away, unfortunately, from a battle with lymphoma. He hasn't had great health for the last few years now, but just looking through his list of achievements, he was an All-Star in 1994, the year after being the Sixth Man of the Year. He was a playoff member all but one of his seasons in the league. He was All-Defensive Second Team 2000 and 2002. He had nearly 20,000 points in his career, which is... Very handy. Very, very handy and easy to forget. He also became the oldest player to register his first 50-point game on the 16th of January 2000 versus Denver. That's a great stat. Yeah, with Phoenix. He was also, at one stage, the tallest player in the league with 1,000 three-pointers. Huh. Yeah, it was since broken by Dirk Nowitzki and Rashad Lewis. Makes sense. Um, we probably actually remember him quite fondly as well, though, from his post-career stuff. He was on Survivor in Season 28. Yes, and um, I remember a challenge that was set up perfectly for him, where he had to basically shoot stuff into a basket. Woo, one of the characters on there, recognised him straight away and actually said, I think I've got quite a few of your basketball cards on. Yeah, that was great. He actually went to North Korea as well with Dennis Rodman on that tour that went across there. So he's had a, a fantastic life and unfortunately at 53 taken far too far soon. Far too young, far and, too young. And a, another memory for me, obviously he went to the NBA finals and is right next to Jordan in that famous shrug. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so when, he might have gone to two finals with Portland, I believe actually, did he? Yeah, the one against Detroit in nineteen. Yeah, their second of their back-to-back, which yeah. Which they lost in five. Yeah. Yeah, he's actually the fourth member of that 1990s Blazers team to, to pass away. Yeah, terrible, isn't it? So Along with Kevin Duckworth. Jerome Kersey. Jerome Kersey. And Drazen Petrovic. Drazen Petrovic, of, so, of course. So, yeah, not a not a great day, obviously, for Portland. And, and I guess the other one we've got to look at, Lute Olsen. Yeah, Lute Olsen was 85, so he had a much better knock, but still very sad, of course. He took both Iowa and Arizona to the Final Four, including winning it all with Arizona in 1997 in a team that featured Mike Bibby, 
Jason Terry and was captained by Miles Simon, Simon. if I remember, I'm not mistaken. They actually came across. They did, and we went and saw them at Joondalup. At Joondalup, yeah. And they beat the Wildcats in a one-point overtime, or like a game-winning thriller or something. Yeah, we can... It was have, real close. But we can say that the Wildcats won that. Night. Well, the Wildcats did win, but not Perth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, other guys he coached included Gilbert Arenas, Andre Iguodala, Damon Studemeyer, and then there were guys like Steve Kerr and Luke Walton, who have become really good coaches in their own right. Pretty handy role players as well. Oh, yeah. Well, Steve Kerr was more than a role player at Arizona, of course, and big man on campus. But yes, in the NBA, a role player. When he called it quits in 2007, his 781 wins were sixth all-time, and he's one of only five Division I coaches all-time to win at least 20 games in 20 consecutive seasons. Wow. So one of the all-time greats in the college world, sadly, also no longer with us. Speaking of no longer with us in a different way, we've had two coach firings very quickly after their teams were eliminated. Yeah, I think the trigger finger was a little bit too itchy on these two personally, but the first one was Brett Brown. So not... That one, not so surprising. We kind of speculated about that and we wonder if Ty Lue is firmly in their sights. Yeah, I just I, f- I feel bad that he kind of had to fall on his sword after what happened with Ben Simmons. They didn't have a great run with injuries, no. but what this says to me is that the organisation probably wants him to do that and instead of them potentially looking to break up the Embiid and Simmons duo. I think with a new coach, they may be potentially going all in on that. Yeah, no, I think they probably will still stick with them. And they probably should, to be honest. Poor Brett's been rumoured to be fired probably the last three seasons. I'd say probably every season since yeah, he's been there. so, really. you know, maybe it's time for him to move on. But obviously he's got those Australian ties coaching the North Melbourne Giants and then, of course, more recently the Boomers. The boomers. Yeah, so... We always like to see him go okay, so hopefully, who knows, maybe Pop will pick him up to uh, come back to San Antonio again. Why not? And, and then Indiana. This yeah, one was a surprise, i got to say. It was, it was. I mean, how Nate McMillan was supposed to succeed with Victor Oladipo out for most of the season oh. and Sabonis out for the playoffs. Yeah, well, and the bubble play-in games. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a Coach of the Year candidate. Hmm. Uh, like a strong coach of the year, yeah, can't he? would have been top four or five for me. So that's a bit of a head scratcher. Maybe they have someone in their sights. Who knows? But I think that's probably a bit rough. I think they probably win the series with Sabonis. Well, well, mm, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think they. I don't know about that. But, I think they do. But, but you know, they would have been a lot better. Uh, who knows? Maybe the 76ers will pick up Nate McMillan. Maybe there'll be a bit of musical chairs. Who knows? I'm just sick of guys getting fired because of injuries. Yeah, it's a bit rough. And speaking of awards, we do have an award. Giannis won the Defensive Player of the Year, something you're not too pleased with, Stewie. No. I mean, he, he had the lowest field goal percentage scored on him in the league, so I'll give him that. But I just feel like this is a slight mistake by the voters. Do you know the only guys to win Defensive Player of the Year and average less blocks a game than him were Kawhi Leonard in 2015, Ron Artest in 2004, Gary Payton in 96, and Dennis Rodman in 1990-91. So, Mostly smalls. Middles or smalls. Oh, and Alvin Robertson, sorry, in 86. But Alvin Robertson averaged 3.7 steals a game. Payton averaged 2.9. Leonard averaged 2.3. These guys are all getting massive amounts of steals, and Giannis only had one steal a game. Do you think the fact he played so few minutes means that the eye test has won over the stat test here? Potentially. I mean, you could argue that he's the best defensive player on, I think, the best defensive team in the league. So Yeah, well, that's right. Maybe that's how he they look at it. He spearheaded the best defensive team in the league. But I, I just don't... I think, if anything, you could sort of say, well, he's surrounded by other great defenders, so... 
you would look at that and say, well, maybe on another team that doesn't have so many great defenders. Yeah, but guys elite... like Brook Lopez weren't known for their defense, and they, he's improved since he oh, joined. Oh, he's a great back. shot blocker. Um, Eric Bledsoe is a decent. Yeah, Eric Bledsoe is a good defender. So George Hill. Yeah, so there's a lot of guys yeah. out there. So I actually had a look at a couple of times that players were potentially screwed. So Dennis Rodman was was lucky both of his. So in 1990, Hakeem Olajuwon led the league in total blocks, blocks per game, defensive rebounds, defensive rating. Rodman was 13th. Defensive win shares, Rodman was 9th. And defensive plus minus, Rodman was 42nd. Did those stats even exist back then? Well, I don't know if the voters had that. But, <laughs> I doubt you know, it. But, I doubt it. But, you know, plus minus, I don't know. Plus minus is one of those funny stats. I don't know if I buy into it 100%. But, but... Rodman was 42nd. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah and right. in 91, your mate, David Robinson, led the league in defensive win shares, third in defensive plus minus, an equal leader in block shots. So, uh, well, he definitely should have won. He he definitely yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there was also an argument uh, an argument I read on a website called Fansided that says Tim Duncan should have won at least one in 0304. Well, I was surprised the other week when you said he hadn't won one. Yeah, no, he yeah. averaged 2.7 blocks, 0.9 steals, 9.9 defensive boards a game on a team that was easily the best defensive rated team in the league. So, there are, have been times where people have been screwed. Going back to this though, Giannis, as I said, one steal and one block a game. Davis had 2.3 blocks and 1.5 steals in only an extra four minutes a game. Davis took 0.2 of a charge a game compared to Giannis's 0.03. So he's mm-hmm. not taking charges. And he was the one seed as well on his team in his conference. Exactly. Dav- yeah. Davis, 2.7 deflections to 2.1 a game. The only case that really you can make for me is that Giannis led the league in defensive win shares, whereas Davis was 22nd. But right. I just... I think there's enough of an argument to say that Davis should have won it personally. I don't think it's too egregious, but when we did our picks, I had Davis too. Mm. So he probably could feel a bit aggrieved, but I don't think it's a howler. I feel aggrieved. Fair enough. God. Anyway, moving on. Uh, you've got a bubble thought for us. I do. Now, a couple of things. One that I keep forgetting to mention. I'll mention that second. Firstly, so we've talked about a lot of virtual fans and cardboard cutouts of people, but I saw two human beings. Now, I can't remember which games they were because they all kind of blur into one another and I didn't take note. But I saw Peyton Manning, the real Peyton Manning, not a cardboard cutout. He was a virtual fan at one game. And then, now this one I do know, it was the Nuggets Jazz. And I think it was the game where Murray had 50 and Mitchell had 47 or whatever it was. 44. 44, was it? Dikembe Mutombo. Oh, no way. The real life to Kemi Mutombo. And of course, once he realized he was on camera, he did the famous... Had to waggle the finger. Finger waggle. And then the other thing with Dikembe that some people might not know, famously, you can look up the story, but famously, he used to walk into parties and exclaim, Who wants to sex Mutombo? <laughs> so, a bit of a ladies' man too, Dikembe. So, good to see good, to see good old Dikembe uh, uh, in the virtual fan stand there. Then the other thought I had... Now, I've had this thought for weeks and I keep forgetting to say it, but I finally remembered to say it this week. How do they classify the play-in game between Memphis and Portland? Yeah, it's a hybrid between a regular season and a playoff game. That's right. So for those that don't know, in the US they do this funny thing where they separate regular season games from playoff games. And so they have two lots of stats. So over here, we just bundle it all together. If you played 300 games, maybe 25 of them were finals or playoffs and the rest were regular season. But no, in America, they have two different stat books. And so it makes me wonder, where does this one go? Because obviously Dame had that crazy game. So there were some really interesting stats to come out of it. So I wonder where it goes in the history books. So for example, I've just looked up quickly. So Kareem, famously 38,387 points. That is indelibly printed into my brain. 
He did that in 1,560 games, but in an extra 237 playoff games, he had another 5,762 points. Tim Duncan, for example, had 15,091 rebounds in 1,392 games, but he had a further 2,859 rebounds in 251 playoff games. Kobe, 33,643 points in 1,346 games and another 5,640 points in 220 playoff games. So I've also done the math there. So Kareem played nearly an extra... They all played nearly an extra three seasons just in playoff games alone. So Kareem was about 2.9 seasons. Duncan was nearly a full three seasons worth of playoff games. And Kobe, 2.7 seasons worth of playoff games. So yeah, random thought. Again, it's for the stats junkies and probably no one else. But I'd be very interested to know how that game was classified. Yeah, I've just been thinking while you've been rattling off those numbers. It's it's a crazy one because you could almost look at it and say it's kind of like a penalty shootout in soccer where it decides who goes through. So you could argue that it belongs with the regular season. But then it's, yeah, I, I, I would lean more towards it being a regular season. Yeah, that's how I would classify it personally. But yeah, it's, that's an interesting one. It would be fun to see what way they go yeah, with that. Yeah, well, we may never know. But good we'll, good we'll, random thought. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll look at that one. So, okay, let's finally get into the games after everything else that went on that obviously was super important. But the games did resume on Sunday, Australia time, Saturday, US time. But let's go through round by round. So basically nearly every round is now wrapped up. We'll go over to the East. Bucks and Magic, game four. Milwaukee, 121, defeated Orlando, 106. Chris Middleton had 18 of his 21 in the fourth quarter. Giannis had 31 points, 15 rebounds, and eight assists. Game five, Milwaukee came back from the postponement, focused Giannis with 28 and 17 in Milwaukee's 118 to 104 defeat of Orlando. That series is now wrapped up, and they will be facing the Heat, who in Game 4 defeated Indiana 99-87. Miami's bench outscored Indiana's 38-3, completing their first round sweep. It's actually 41-3. No, look, honestly, that it was funny. You go back to when we were doing our predictions beforehand, and that was what I said. Bench scoring was probably going to be the difference in this, and it well and truly showed up. Yeah, well, Indiana very thin. Certainly in those final three games. The Milwaukee-Orlando, not a whole heap to talk about, but Milwaukee 53-2 this season when they have a lead entering the fourth quarter. Wow. So they're very hard to run down. And that's why Giannis can often sit on the bench and not play big minutes. Yeah. Which is why the stats aren't as high as they could be. Exactly. So just shy of 31-16-6 and 16 and 6 for Giannis in that series. Just, just too much for Orlando, unfortunately. So Vucevic, one of the few shining lights for Orlando, averaged nearly 30 for the series. Yeah, well. should have been the all-bubble center. Yes, well, yeah, well, you made a strong case. You made a very strong case. They didn't have one. So, look, it was it was a little bit tighter than I thought for Milwaukee, but they were always going to get through that. And I'm really, really excited about this Milwaukee-Miami series. Yes. What do you, who do you got? Well, look, Miami is actually the only team in the East that has a winning record versus Milwaukee this year. Mm. But they, they've given up big numbers to Giannis in two of those three. They, they need to basically build a brick wall in front of him. I saw, I think it was Orlando actually put a 2-1-2 zone on him. Oh, yeah. So they're pretty much forcing him to shoot threes from straight away, which I, I kind of like the idea from. If Middleton gets going, this could be over really, really quick. For Miami, really the only way that they can stay in this is their ball movement. And I heard Kenny Smith talking about this today on the NBA on TNT. When they move the ball, they get great shots. And against one of the better defensive sides in the league, they have to get great open looks for all of their guys. If they can't get that, this will be over quick. I've actually got the Bucks in five. 
Wow. I wanted to say six, but I just I honestly... Well, given they dropped that game to Orlando, and given everything else that's gone on, they must be super, super exhausted. I, I want to take the Bucks. Do you know what? I've been touting Jimmy Butler the last few weeks. I'm going to go Bucks in seven. Fair. I'm hoping this one goes the distance. They're probably hating four now. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll see. I wouldn't be surprised if the Heat won it, but I... I oh, just... look, I wouldn't be surprised if numerous outcomes, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. 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 And I think that of the teams that are around, I think Miami could give them a bit of a scare. So mm. we'll see. So obviously we're a bit all over the place with the West still in round one for a few series, but we will move to round two in the East as we're sticking with the East. Raptors and Celtics today. Celtics 112 defeated the Raptors 94. Tatum and Smart both had 21 each, and the Celts improved to 4-1 and one over the Raptors this season. Yeah, the only team to have more than two wins against the Raptors this year as well. Mm. Look, I'm not worried for Toronto just yet. Boston got whatever they wanted on offense in game one. I know that Toronto is going to make some adjustments on that. And I can't see the Celtics getting 50% three-point shooting from the likes of Brad Wanamaker and Senny Ojale and Marcus Smart. He was 5 of 9 today after mm. being 2 of 15 against Philly. I, that surely can't keep going. And, speak, and the Gordon Hayward injury, of course, would have to affect Boston. It should catch up with them. And I definitely can't see Fred Van Vliet going 3 for 16 again and Pascal Siakam going 5 for 16. So I'm looking forward to seeing the adjustments that the Raptors make in Game 2. But, yeah, one of the really fun stats as well, it's, it's not that fun, but I, I kind of like it, Boston are now 47-0 and in playoff games where they've led by 15 or more at halftime. So mm. if they have a decent-sized lead... You won't catch them. You know what? Fuck it. Boston in seven. Okay, fair enough. No, I'm picking them. Overreaction. <laughs> Love it. Hey, I got my I got my Boston Celtics. You do the Larry Legend this week. Yeah. For people that don't know me, I've got a fairly large collection of jerseys at home. So Gee, that's an understatement. Yeah. Well, well, not. I mean, there's people that have more, but I've got about thirty odd. So. Um, He's the Imelda Marcos of uh, NBA jerseys. Boy, am I whoever that is. Oh, that's that lady that collected all those shoes. Oh, fair enough. World leader. I can't remember which I'm, country. I'm, I'm, we were very young at the time. That's my excuse. Fair enough. Let's let's go west, shall we? <laughs> uh, so Lakers-Blazers is now all over after the Lakers had a bit of a scare in Game 1, just as the Bucks did. Game 4, Lakers 135 defeated the Blazers 115 on Kobe Day. And then in Game 5, Lakers 131 defeated the Blazers 122. Davis had a career playoff high 43. LeBron had 36-10 and 10. And the Blazers basically, well, they ran out of steam. McCollum was already banged up. Lillard himself, it got even more banged up. And they did super well just to make it there. And they ran out of steam to the number one seed in the West. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm amazed at how close Portland actually kept this, especially without Lillard. Do you know the 79 points that Davis and LeBron combined for in game five were on 28 of 37 shooting? So super efficient. Wow. But yeah, going back to the Blazers, I mean, McCollum, he was a beast. And I keep repeating this. He played with a fractured back. Yes, yes. So good. Do you know the biggest thing that I love out of this series, though? Carmelo Anthony finally has a new home. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how long he sticks around. Well, he's already gone on social media and said that he feels feels like he's at home in Portland. So you get a full season into Nurkic and Collins next year with Lillard, McCollum and Anthony. That could be a three or four seed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Easily. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And obviously they've got some good minutes into guys like Gary Trent Jr. and Jalen Horde and Anthony Simons and, and these sorts of guys. So it can only be good for them. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. They'll, they'll be fine next season, I'm yeah. sure. Clips Mavs, so one of the best series, has not disappointed apart from Game 5. 
where the Clippers came out and absolutely destroyed the Mavs, setting a franchise record for points in a playoff game, 154, defeating the Mavs, 111. George had 35, Kawhi Leonard had 32. And then in game six, the Clippers wrapped it all up, winning the series 4-2. Clippers 111, defeating the Mavs, 97. Kawhi 33-14, career best fifth straight 30-point playoff game for Leonard. Doncic had 38-9-9, but the biggest news... Marcus Morris getting ejected. He's a dick. He really is. Yep. He really is. Look, I still stand by this. I believe the Mavericks would have won that series with Kristaps Porzingis. Yeah, well, So maybe. Yeah, so he had that lateral meniscus tear in his right knee, which ended his series, and unfortunately his season as well. So just too much on Luca. I mean, he was phenomenal in Game 4, but... Unfortunately, yeah, too much Leonard and George in Game 5, as you said. That was the third highest team score in a playoff game all time, just three shy of the record. How much credence should we put in these records in the bubble with scoring and stuff? Look, I still think you have to play them the same way. I mean, if anything, you could probably say that they hold a higher credence. So. Mike D'Antoni came out and said that the lack of travel and the fact that they're basically playing in the same stadium helps their... They don't need to adjust... So their shooting should improve. But it's also like an away game because you're staying in a hotel. Yeah, all, true, all true. Yeah, yeah, true. So true. I, I think you can make it. But I think it's close. it's a fair argument if the rims are the same every night and you don't need to worry about a crowd behind them and this, that and the other. Yeah. I can see how guys might shoot a little bit better. Yeah, I but, haven't crunched the stats. I mean, it. there's things like you don't have to go to altitude as well with places like Denver. But yep. I, I still think that these if anything, are worth potentially more because of the fact that the, these guys are going through so much emotional shit right well, now. Well, yes, so, yes, definitely. But um, no, look, I, I think the big thing for me with this, in Game 6, I, I watched that. Kawhi just picked him apart. He had smaller players on him like Trey Burke, Seth Curry, Tim Hardaway Jr. He got to his spot and just rose up over the top of them. When he had a bigger guy on him like Maxi Kleber or Dorian Finney-Smith, he just beat them with speed. So I like potentially Denver to get through and they're going to a game seven we'll get to that one in a second <laughs> yes we will but I like the idea of guys like Jeremy Grant on him who's both very very quick and also long and tall so and playing well but yeah let's go back to this Marcus Morris incident oh yeah so, we must we must so, so Marcus kind of marred the last two games of the series with dubious acts to say the least yeah so game five after a made basket he comes running up towards the back of Luka Doncic and steps on his already injured ankle at the time, I thought it was accidental. I was, I thought, you know what? I can see how that could be. Yeah, an accident. yeah, me too. I watched it several times, and I was like, yeah, that looked accidental until game six. Exactly, exactly. So, for people that haven't seen it, Doncic driving to the basket, and Morris just comes down and clubs him in the side of the head. Gets ejected for it, which he should have. Obviously, mm, a flagrant mm. two hitting the guy in the side of the head. Yep. That really makes me not so sure about this anymore. Yeah, no, I agree. I was on the fence or maybe even giving him the benefit of the doubt with the first incident. But when I saw the second incident, I was like, nah, he is gooning him. He is going out to intentionally bang him up. Yep. Ah, dear. But check this out. So it was Doncic's first playoff series. 31 points a game, 9.8 rebounds, 8.7 assists. Youngest player ever to hit a playoff buzzer beater, 40-point triple-double, 21 years old, and on a dodgy ankle. And youngest player to score a 40 in a playoff game, wasn't he, as well? Might have been. Yeah, I think he might have been. Yeah, he was was destroying the record books. Sensational. Yeah, 
He uh, well, like I said last week, I wouldn't be surprised if he won an MVP before he was twenty-five. Mm. Speaking of record books, Denver Utah. Oh, what a series this has been! Now you you managed to convince me that the Mavs Clippers was the better series last week, but the way this one's gone in the last few games, maybe not. It was at the time. But no, <laughs> this one's well and truly usurped it. And by the way, since we recorded, I did watch Game Four, which was absolutely magnificent. Uh, so in Game Five, Nuggets one seventeen defeated the Jazz one oh seven. Murray had thirty three of his forty two in the second half. And then today in Game 6, forcing a Game 7, the Nuggets 119 defeated the Jazz 107 once again. Murray had his second 50 of the series. Mitchell had 44 as the Nugs extended it to a juicy deciding Game 7. And geez, don't you wish this series was going 51? Well, yeah, well, this was, I think I said about the Indiana-Miami that it could go best of 35. I think mean, this yeah, is the one yeah. we'd take. So we've got some, some really cool things here. So... After Game 5, Jamal Murray became the first player in NBA history with back-to-back 40-point games with zero turnovers. Wow. I didn't say that. Isn't that something? That is just absolutely crazy. That's magnificent. And he also joined some guy named Michael Jordan as the only player since 1976 to follow a 50-point playoff game with a 40-point playoff game. And obviously, yeah, today was just another level. He was 17 of 24 from the field, 9 of 12 from threes, just tough shot after tough shot. This is just, I mean, I've seen people saying, can we make this just a one-on-one in Game 7? Just get rid of everyone else and just have... Oh, yeah, just keep these teams in the bubble, yeah. Yeah. And, and, I mean, as I mentioned before the playoffs begun, they'd had the same score until the second overtime of that bubble game, you know, that had to break the tie on the season series. So, yeah, they they just love playing each other, these teams. And we mentioned last week that Mitchell had become this third player to have two 50-point games in the same series... Murray's now joined him in the Becoming same the series. Fourth, yeah, yeah, a but, game later. Or, or, but how's or, or, this for Jamal Murray's last three games? 47.3 points a game, 64% from the field, 63% from the Yeah, three. I saw that today. So but Crazy. I actually think the biggest highlight from that game, though, was his post-game interviews. Yeah, so I've got the game taped. I might watch it tonight. I'll watch it tomorrow, if not tonight. But I did hear about the interview. I haven't seen it yet. It was so emotional just seeing how much this means to him and also how much, obviously, all of the Black Lives Matter... All of that stuff it just just means to him. And, and then you see them talking about things. A lot of these guys have been saying the same sort of stuff that whether they live or die shouldn't be determined by the color of their skin. And mm. there's just so many of these things. And there's video of him basically lying down in the hallway back to where the rooms are in tears. It's really, really interesting to watch. Just going back, I guess, to stats as well, though. There have been four 50-point games in this 20 postseason, all of them in this series. Wow. Um, it's actually the most 50-point games in a single postseason in NBA history as well. And it's all from one series. <laughs> I, I was surprised that Alex English didn't have a bigger... Well, he... I don't he had a really good career for the yeah. Nuggets. I, I thought he might have had a higher... I thought he might have had a playoff 50, but no. Man, well, I mean, I just... We'll don't, have to... Sorry, that's think, on I notice. just don't think that they played many playoff games. Well, I guess them. so. I mean, they won an ABA title, but yeah, in the NBA, mm. yeah. But how's this going into Game 7? Teams are 242-11 and 11 when leading a series 3-1. Yep. It's that old stat they trot out every year. I think it's, I think this is number 12. Yeah. Well, could be. Yep. Could be. And then finally, in the 4-5 matchup, in Game 4, OKC 117 defeating Houston 114. Dennis Schroeder had a career playoff high 30, and OKC actually trailed by 15 in the third, but managed to get it down to just one heading into the fourth quarter and getting away with the win there. And then finally, game five, Houston won 14, defeated OKC. 80. 80. Dominated. Russell Westbrook coming back. 
albeit with minutes restrictions. And a delicious 3 of 13 from the field, but it did not matter. Well, yeah, you know. Look, let me start by saying this. Bill Kennedy is my new hero. So I know a lot of people are frustrated by these step-back threes that Harden shoots because they're practically all travels. In the second quarter of Game 4 of this series, I finally saw it. Harden comes to a two-foot jump stop and just jumps about four feet sideways like he usually does. Whistle blows. I think, here we go. Here's another BS foul on that move. But Kennedy provided me with the call we've been waiting years for. <laughs> Travelling. I don't know, though. Because if you call it once, you have to always call it, right? So either you have to ignore it or you have to always call it. So I don't know if I agree with you on that one. Look, I don't use the word hero very often, but... He is the greatest hero in American history. Oh, when Tyler Hero comes along <laughs> with the strength to carry on. Now, look, Wrong series. Yes, very very true. Now, look, you mentioned some, yeah, some great stats from there. Houston actually started the third quarter in game four, eight of eight from three-point range as well. So they were on fire, and thankfully they went ice cold to let us back into the game. But going to game five, Thunder just laid an egg, unfortunately. 35 points in the second half. One point from Danilo Gallinari on a technical foul free throw as well, so mm. no impact. Four points from Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And I have to say, I stand corrected on that Lou Dort comment you made last week about him taking too many threes. He is now 5 of 32 in the series at 15.6%. I'm not afraid to say I did fall asleep in that game last night, and it was pretty late. It was a shit game anyway. But uh, the memory that is very strong in my mind was when they left wide open and he had a clear path to the lane he had a red carpet for a dunk and he settled on a three instead and that was one of the six he missed in the first quarter we've definitely run out of door license oh he's got he's got a he's got a dish and he's got to put the ball on the floor put the ball on the floor and create he's a capable dribbler stop taking those threes put the ball on the floor create let another guy shoot a three. Yeah, I can't see the thunder getting out of this one, unfortunately. But Nathan, I wanted to get your thoughts on the Dennis Schroeder, PJ Tucker incident. What were your thoughts on that? Well, I did not off by then, but you showed me the video. Well, I don't think both should have been ejected. I would have ejected Tucker for the little headbutt after the incident. So they had a bit of a collision. Yeah. It was a bit of a low blow. But I think it might have been unintentional. But Schroeder bounced straight back up, walked away, Tucker followed him, gave him a little bit of a headbutt to the back of the head. That, to me, is the ejectable offence, and I definitely wouldn't have thrown Schroeder out. Well, yeah, I mean, I thought definitely a flagrant one from Schroeder, so that's obviously two shots in the ball. I'm not even sure that Tucker should have got thrown out for that. You could maybe say, yeah, by the letter of the law, headbutt him, off you go. Yeah. And especially the fact that it was to the back of his head as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just didn't think it should have been a double ejection. Anyway. Mm. I think the the Thunder will probably be getting knocked out in the next game. Yeah, so let's assume that. Let's talk. Let's look forward because we won't get the benefit of predicting the next series before it starts. Obviously, recording every Monday. What do you reckon? Who do you like? So we'll have. So Lakers, Houston, and Clippers, Denver. Or Clippers, Jazz. You think Clippers, Denver? I think Denver. I'm assuming that Denver take it. So we'll start off at the Lakers, Houston. So this is going to be the big test for small ball. You've got a monster big man in Davis, and we've obviously had this conversation before Mm. over a seven-game series. Harden still enough to get, I think, two games for Houston, but I just feel like Houston's shooting is going to break down at some stage. I've kind of changed my tune a bit, having seen how it goes. And I reckon LeBron's going to figure out Houston's defense by game two. So I'm going Lakers in six. No, Lakers in five. Okay. I don't have a lot of faith in... I mean, I know Russell's back. Maybe I have too little faith in Houston, but... It's fair enough. I think the Lakers will handle them pretty easily. Cool. No worries. And then Clippers-Denver, what do you... What do Clippers-Denver or Clippers-Jazz. I think we need to predict for both. So I'll, I'll have the Clippers either way. Yeah. 
Well, so for me, I mean, I want the Nuggets to knock the Clips out personally, and and I know that they're going to be a bigger challenge, I guess, than than what Dallas were, obviously, without Paul Zingas. They've got bigger players who can challenge Leonard and Paul. The Clippers also have better perimeter D, though, than the Jazz do, and this is what I'm assuming is, is going to happen. So I don't know that Murray's going to be able to have his way with them as easily. Nikola Jokic is the key for Denver's mm. chances. If he can knock down threes consistently, drag Zubac out of the key into the perimeter, he can get into the paint from there and score at will. If they put Harrell on him, he has to go low post and has to dominate. Then they've got a double. That opens up your shooters. I still think Clippers in seven if they're playing Denver, and I think Clippers in five if they play Utah. I'm going to take... Yeah, I think I'll go the same. I think I'll say Clippers in seven if it's if it's the Nuggets. If it's the Jazz, I'll give them two games. I'll say Clippers in six. But either way, I'll, I'll take the Clippers. Cool. Yep, well, we'll see how that goes. And quickly, an NBL news, Stewie, a bit free agency update. Yeah, a couple of quick things. We mentioned last week Casey Prather was leaving Melbourne United. He was picked up during the week by Hapoel Eilat, I believe it is, in Israel. So he's... Uh. He's off that way. Uh, the Wildcats assigned local boy Andrew Ferguson as a development player. He's seven foot tall, three-point range. Could be a pretty decent prospect for the future. But on the flip side, John Mooney, who we've just signed, has actually been attracting a lot of attention from NBA teams with 11 of them in contact with him right now. Gee. The Sydney Kings have re-signed Casper Ware, so he's a big boost to them after their franchise has been decimated. Um, they're looking incredibly thin, actually, on their official website. Speaking of thin, their new signing, Dayan Vasiljevic, is listed on their official website as 190 centimetres and zero kilograms. <laughs> so I guess he must be entirely made of helium. <laughs> um, He'll have good ups. Yeah, yeah true. Um, the Hawks have also signed Boise State's Justinian Jessup to a two-year Next Stars contract, which I didn't realise doesn't actually count towards their import quota. No, that's right. Yep. So he's a 40% three-point shooter and a 96% free-throw shooter, 70 of 73 last season. Elena Deladon, eat your heart He's a Deladon, if yeah. ever I've seen one. So he's a big, big pickup to their roster. And again, just the Hawks keep getting stronger and stronger. Decent handle as well. He's engaged on defense. He's a lefty. <laughs> Honestly, the Hawks are my pick. Oh, well, geez. Absolutely, they're my pick. Yeah, before, put some money on them. I wonder what the odds are. So, yeah, not, not a whole heap of things this week, but some pretty big ones, certainly for the contenders anyway. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week comes from four-year-old Rocco Figueredi, who has done something many golfers try unsuccessfully to do for their entire life when he stepped up to the first hole at the Ogle Bay Resort in West Virginia and put his tee shot into the cup for a hole-in-one. <laughs> Oh, I've watched this video. I've got several things to say about it. The first thing, as someone who's been playing golf for 24 years and never been closer than about six inches from the hole, damn this kid, seriously. Four years old. Also not the youngest kid to ever have a hole in one. Though. What? There's You're a, kidding. A three-year-old. I did some research on How? Those. I don't know. How? I think the three-year-old... On, on a mini golf no, course? No, it was a 65-yard hole for the three-year-old. This one actually looked about 100-odd yards, so it was a pretty Bloody decent size hell. hole. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Um, the second <laughs> thing, though, his father's reaction is utterly hideous for a four-year-old achieving this. If I was even in the same playing group as someone who, who hit an ace, I would be yelling and screaming like a madman. And he's, he's just sitting there going, oh, go on, go in the hole, go in the hole. What? Like, that, that's not the reaction you make. So mm. the third thing, the kid is wearing Crocs. <laughs> that is uh. child abuse. Well, no, that's, you've just got to put on a pair of Crocs next time you go out, Stewie, and you might you might hit a hole in one. It's not worth it. It is just not worth it. But he shouldn't have even been allowed on the course with Crocs. Uh, but. Golf's always uh, known for bad fashion. Why not get the Crocs in there too? Well, exactly right. And number four, 
Well done, kid. <laughs> bloody hell. I take my hat off to you, child, but bloody hell. Move on. <laughs> bloody hell. All right, Stewie, there's enough going on in the tennis world for us to not relegate it to the news roundup. We've got a few little bits and pieces going on in the lead into the US Open. Yeah, we do. And we've only just heard a little bit about Novak Djokovic's breakaway players union as well. So we don't even really have... Might have to return to that one next week. Yeah, we don't even have enough to get into it this week. So And there's still enough for it to be its own segment. <laughs> so, yeah, we spoke at a reasonable length over the past few months about asterisk seasons. And with the US Open scheduled to start overnight in New York, it seems that Novak Djokovic is doing everything he can to downplay the size of the asterisk for this Grand Slam. He probably fancies he's going to win it, hey? Well, if he doesn't win it, there's something wrong, quite frankly. But he actually stated, it's bound to be weird that Federer and Nadal aren't there. They'll be missed, no doubt, because they are legends of our sport. But apart from Federer, Nadal, and Vavrinka, all the best players are there. It would be disrespectful to all the other players to say that I have a better chance without Roger and Rafa. Team, Sverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, these guys are as strong as the three of us. That's all well and good. These guys are absolutely amazing players. If they're as strong as, wouldn't they have won as many titles? Well, exactly. Djokovic is the only top 10 seed in the draw with a Grand Slam win. Yeah. In fact, the only other two guys that have actually won one are unseeded Andy Murray and Marin Cilic, who's the 31 seed. Both of those guys are very much past their prime. So I'd be very shocked if he didn't waltz his way to the A. Well, obviously he fancies himself a winner and he's trying to downplay the criticism before it happens. Exactly, exactly. Mm. So he actually won uh, a tournament, I think it was in Cincinnati overnight as well. He he won that fairly comfortably. So he's in very good form moving in there. And unfortunately, it seems like he's going to get one step closer to the great man, Roger Federer. Mm. Mm. I did actually have a look at the draws though. So uh, there were a a couple of really, really cool matchups that I liked in the first round for the men and the women. So... The first one I like the look of is Ivo Karlovic and Richard Gasquet. So Karlovic, huge server. Gasquet, the Frenchman, he is a very, very quick guy around the court. So it's kind of going to be, you know, fire versus ice effectively. And and that's going to be a great one. That's a surprising first round matchup, isn't it? With a weakened field. Yeah, well, it's great to see these little ones in there because there's so many of them where I, I don't even recognize half the players' names nowadays. But yeah, between that, you've got Roberto Batista Agut, who's obviously a very, very solid player, um, and Tennis Sangren, the uh, the local boy. So again, he's one that has gone very, very far in tournaments before. So he's certainly someone who could potentially give the second week a decent push. And the one I really, really love, though, Kevin Anderson playing Alex Sparov in the first round. So... Sparov had a pretty disappointing lead-up. He had a, a match against, I think it was against Andy Murray, actually, where he was basically serving for the match and served a bunch of double faults, so his, his serve just went off the rails. And Kevin Anderson, people very easily forget that he actually beat Roger Federer, in a, I think it was in a semi-final. I can't remember which Grand Slam it was, but he took the title effectively mm. away from Federer. So, mm. so that's going to be a cracker. In the women's, you've got six of the top ten missing, but there are some very, very cool ones in the first round. So you've got Coco Goff, again, the American. You'd expect her to do fairly well. She's got Anastasia Sevastova. I think she's the 31 seed from memory. You've got the all-British clash, so Heather Watson and Johanna Conta, which I think will be an absolute belter. And then you've got the return of Kim Clijsters playing a Katarina. For a third time. Yeah, exactly. So she's playing a Katarina Alexandrova. So some really, really good stuff in the first round. 
Now, who won't be playing in the first round? There's been a, a retirement announcement. The Bryan brothers uh, have re-announced their retirement effective immediately. Originally, the plan was to coincide with the end of the US Open. The identical twins captured an open-era record 119 trophies in 26 seasons, including all four Grand Slams, all nine ATP Masters, 1000s, and the Olympic gold medal. They first became the world number one pair in the ATP doubles rankings on September 8th, 2003, and they spent spent a total of 438 weeks at the top, ending 10 seasons as the number one team in 2003, 05-07, and 09-14. So sad to see them not participating. Oh, all I can say is thank God I don't have to see that ridiculous chest bump celebration ever again. <laughs> but no, they obviously will be sorely missed. They were ridiculous as a team. They, they were very much this generation's woodies. Well, as we said, they kind of took the... Uh... They took, took the, the baton. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yep. They took the baton and ran with it very, yep. very well. So, and then probably the other big news to come out of this was Benoit Paire, the Frenchman, has actually tested positive for COVID on the oh, eve dear. of the tournament. So, oh, yes. uh, I mentioned last week that the U.S. Open has set up the sort of coronavirus safe hotels around New York to give people somewhere to stay. And I tell you what, we gave Djokovic a bit of serve, bit, a bit of a serve. Yeah, pardon the pun. Yeah. Last week about the fact that he's staying away from there, but. It kind of looks like the smart one out of all of them now. Because <laughs> well. there's, uh, well, presumably there's no coronavirus in that house unless he's still got it. But um, yeah, on the eve of the tournament, that's a really big concern. Oh, it really is. I mean, geez, it could put a real spanner in the works if, if a few other people catch it. Yep. Big trouble. Exactly. So this is one we will very much have to keep our eyes on. And who knows, we could be talking about a, an absolute clusterfuck next week. Pardon, <laughs> pardon, the, uh, pardon the wording. But. <laughs> and now. This week in sport history. So on the 25th of August 2012, Melanie Albrecht of Germany breaks the 200 metre world record for running backwards in a time of 37.94 seconds. Mm. Now I actually got to see some video footage of a guy named Vez Pohl who ran a marathon backwards in 3 hours 57 minutes and 26 seconds in 1990. Jeez. I couldn't even run it forwards in probably twice that. Oh, the way that's, I'm going right that now. is nuts. Isn't it just nuts? It looks hilarious though. <laughs> I bet it does, especially with Benny Hill music. <laughs> August 26, 2016, San Francisco 49er Colin Kaepernick kneels in protest during the U.S. National Anthem at San Diego's Qualcomm Stadium while playing a preseason game against the Green Bay Packers, objecting to racial injustice and police brutality in the U.S., and could this be more apt in any other time? It's just a shame that it's still going four years later, yeah. 400 years later, let's be honest. I'd love to go into more detail here, but we're just so chock-a-block this week. We'll talk about the NFL more next week. Yep, definitely. August the 27th, 1990, a game between the Milwaukee Brewers and the Toronto Blue Jays is actually delayed 35 minutes due to Nats. What, the Washington Nationals? No, no, Gnats. Oh. <laughs> Those ones. Those ones. Yeah, so the, uh, the Sky Dome roof actually had to be closed. Because there were so many gnats in the air that the players were being distracted. I don't even know what gnats are. They fly. Like a fly. Are they midges? Yeah, kind of like midges. Ah. So, so yes, probably the only baseball game ever to be delayed because of bugs. (laughs) August 30, 1979, in a wild encounter at the US Open, John McEnroe beat Ily Nastasi 6-4-4-6-6-3-6-2. Nastasi defaulted by the umpire, then reinstated. This is crazy. I actually read a really in-depth article, part of John McEnroe's book, actually, 
Um, so what happened was Nastasi was coming to the end of his career. He knew that he was going to be beaten in this game. And towards the end of it, he just started acting a fool, basically, complaining about Lions calls, sitting down on line judge chairs and all sorts of silly things. So the umpire defaulted him after a, a bunch of different calls. The crowd absolutely rioted. They went mental on this and started started throwing you know beer cans and all sorts of different they things. They wanted to see John win fair and square rather than get defaulted. Pretty much. And it actually ruined the career of the umpire. So they had to re they had to swap umpires during wow. the game. It was it during got, the game. It got that bad. Wow. So it was yeah, absolutely crazy. I mean, it, this is one of those things. If you get a chance to to read the full story, just take the time, take a few minutes. And then rounding things off on August thirty first, nineteen ninety, baseball outfielders Ken Griffey and Ken Griffey Jr. become the first father and son to play on the same team, the Seattle Mariners. The pair hit back-to-back singles in the first inning and both scored. How cool is that? Very cool. And will we see a LeBron and Bronny team? I was just about to say that. It's, it's very possible. It is, very, it is possible. very possible. This week in sport history. So lots of news in the football codes. We'll rush through the soccer and the rugby as we so often do, but you've got some news there for both the soccer and the rugby, Stewie. Yeah, so starting off in England, the FA Community Shield was held overnight. So Arsenal won, defeated Liverpool won. 5-4 on penalties, though. <laughs> so Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang put Arsenal ahead in the 12th minute and Takumi Minamino equalised in the 73rd. We actually ended up at penalties where Aubameyang provided the knockout punch. Spare a thought, though, for Rian Brewster. He came on late in stoppage time. His one and only kick of the game was blasting a penalty off the top of the crossbar, which was ultimately the difference. Yeah. Poor guy. Yeah. Back at home, we had the Hyundai A-League semi-finals and grand final over the last few days. So the two semi-finals were on Wednesday with Melbourne City and, and Sydney FC moving on, setting up the grand final most people wanted to see. Melbourne City FC 2 defeated Western United nil. Second half penalty to Jamie McLaren and an own goal to Tomoki Imai sent Melbourne to the decider. And then Sydney FC 2 defeated Perth Glory nil. Two goals in the space of four minutes in the first half to Milos Ninkovic and Adam LaFondra with a difference. Sydney won the possession 52-48%. to Oddly, the first game all season that the Glory have lost when losing the possession percentage. And probably lucky to be there without Diego Castro playing in oh, the... Oh, incredibly lucky. Yeah. Yeah, no, he definitely drives that midfield. On to the grand final, there was a bit of drama. Harrison Delbridge had a goal ruled out in the first half because one of his teammates was offside, but ultimately we ended up in extra time where Ryan Grant provided us with the nipple of God. Oh. Chesting home a gorgeous through ball from Luke Braddon to win the cup for Sydney FC. A lot of people very glad this season is over and hopefully the next instalment's back to normal, I guess. Mm. Now, the NRL, we have a, a really crazy story coming out of Sydney. So, a rugby league rising star is among players banned for life from the sport after a stabbing at a game earlier this month. 19-year-old Ratu Nanovo was among three players banned after the incident in a game between Penrith Brothers and Wentworthville Magpies earlier this season. Nanovo was arrested and charged with three counts of wounding with intent to cause grievous bodily harm. That actually carries a maximum penalty of 25 years in prison. Yeah, it's a very sad story on numerous levels. Yeah, so it'll be alleged that the former schoolboy's star went into his car, grabbed a knife, hid it in his shorts, and then stabbed three males, a 19-year-old Magpies player, and two spectators after a fight broke out in the car park. It's just tragic to throw, really, throw your life away over yeah, something like it that. Really is. Over a game of football. It really is. Anyway, let's get to the AFL. So Teflon Tom Lynch escaped with yet another fine for his little uh, jumper punch to Michael Hurley. Yeah, it was Michael Hurley, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he continues to uh, escape punishment there. The Eagles have tried to buy a home game, I see, as well, to finish the season. 
Well, it's not so much just us trying to buy it, but North Melbourne, North Melbourne trying, trying to sell as well. Mm. Uh, this is one of these things. North Melbourne, I think they're struggling financially, and they tried to, I guess, sell a home game to the Eagles for about $700,000, which I think the Eagles were very, very happy to do. Anything to get out of Queensland right now. Well, that, and they make a lot of money at the gates, so clearly they... They would have loved to have They had still would have made a profit. Yeah, but the yeah. AFL's actually rejected it, which... I'm kind of on the fence about it because I can understand other clubs being a bit annoyed in terms of why does West Coast get to do this and we don't. But at the same time, this is potentially a club that well, you hope hope isn't in a position where they could go bankrupt. But this yeah, but if the AFL has to foot the bill to fly everyone back to Perth and to put all of North Melbourne up in a hotel at short notice, I, I don't have a problem with teams selling games. So obviously, you know, Melbourne used to sell games so that they could play at the Gabba or teams playing in the Territory and Tassie and China. They've played in all sorts of places. But this late in the season, yeah, I think it was probably the right call not to allow it. Unfortunately, yeah, I kind of agree with that. Grand final venue. Now, we'd hope to have the update on that one by today. Unfortunately, now they're saying tomorrow. We won't know for sure until it actually gets announced. It's but Bris- it will be it's Queensland. Brisbane. Just get on with it. Yes, it will. It will be Queensland. Any injuries this week, Street? Uh, there's there's a f- always injuries. Yeah, there's a few, unfortunately. So... Hawthorne Essen and Jonathan Patton did a calf. Richmond West Coast had a nasty concussion for Josh Kennedy early after a knee from Noel Bolter to the face. Dylan Grimes did a hamstring, so he definitely wasn't faking that. Yeah, some people might say karma for that one. Mm. Uh, in the Bulldogs, Geelong, so Lathan Vandermeer and Easternwood both did hamstrings, and Zach Tui has very sore ribs after taking a pretty hard knock. Uh, Brad Ebert took a shot to the head in the Port Adelaide-Sydney game and has a cheekbone issue. The size of the egg on his face. Did you see it? Well, it wouldn't be the first one to cause an egg. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Moving on. Fremantle GWS, Luke Ryan has a bruised hip and Josh Kelly left the ground after a sickening clash with Shane Mumford's hip. Mm. There's not a spot on Shane Mumford's body you'd want to hit. No, definitely not. His hip is probably one of the worst. Mm, mm. Uh, Michael Hibbard hurt an ankle in the Melbourne St Kilda game, and then Chris Main copped a pretty nasty concussion from Paddy Cripps in the Carlton Collingwood game. But Cripps has a knee issue that happened pretty much straight after that, so mm. quite a big one, unfortunately. Mm. And as we get to the tail end of the season, they become ever more important. So let's get into the games. Quick roundup of them. No spotlight game this week, but what I will say is Adelaide had a buy along with Brisbane, so they can at least say they didn't lose this weekend. <laughs> Good news for the Crows. In a year of not much. 36 touches to Zach Merritt and three goals from Joey Danaher in his first game in 467 days helped the Bombers overcome a six-goal deficit, 13-9-84, defeating Hawthorne 10-11-71. Yeah, the Bombers did well here, coming back from six goals down. Joey Danaher's back, and all of a sudden the Bombers look like they could be a finals team. <laughs> I feel like this is probably the time where I need to say once again, and they have that game against Melbourne in hand. Yeah, they do. Although Melbourne are starting to play pretty decent well, footy as true. well. But that's true. Andrew McGrath had 32 touches as well. And I have to say, though, the big talking point for me, Devin Smith, the foot sweep that he had in that game, I don't know how the hell that was only worth half the fine that Luke Shuey got. Shuey's was a, a tiny little trip that basically professionally stopped a play going on. Smith basically dropped down. He looked like he was part of Shredder's crew. Mm. So, yeah. Ridiculous. Well, I haven't seen that one yet, but I'm going to have to get my eyes on that's it before ridiculous. next week. Three goals to Teflon Tom and 26 possessions to Trent Cochin meant that the Eagles' eight-game winning streak is now over. Richmond 14-4-88, defeating West Coast 9-7-61. The minute they leave Perth, they lose again. Yeah, look, this was a real flex from the Tigers. Their, their pressure around the contest was next level. They're starting to look like that side that demolished everyone last year. Look, obviously losing Josh Kennedy early hurt, but for me the game comes down to three things. 
Toby Nankervis and Ivan Soldo neutralized Nick Nat. They took away Jeremy McGovern's ability to influence the pack, and he was made to pay every time he tried to. And three times in the third quarter, we had three or four guys going for the same mark, and when the ball got to the ground, Richmond players swooped in and kicked goals. So, But I have to say this. Jack Rewalt made the decision in the dying seconds to kick a ball from 15 metres out on a very slight angle around the corner. Yeah, on his I saw left that boot. one. <laughs> Jason Dunstall said it was incredibly disrespectful to the game and to West Coast, and I agree entirely. I think that's... Pathetic. If Josh Kennedy did that, I'd be saying the exact well, same we've, thing. Well, we've talked about goal-kicking kind of turning to shit, and guys just aren't... Do you think it was a confidence thing? I think there's a lot of guys that just aren't confident in front of goal, and they don't want to look like an idiot. So if they use that MO and they miss, they can say, oh, well, I used the wrong MO. You look like an even bigger idiot for yeah, not kicking well, a drop punt. I, honestly, yeah. I do. I think at that stage, it's disrespectful. Yeah, well, we talked about running up scores last week in that vein. Yep. Geelong brought a knife to a gunfight, facing a 39-3 quarter-time score, and then completely turned the tables, holding the Dogs to only 22 the rest of the way. Geelong 10-12-72, defeating Western Bulldogs 9-7-61. They kind of swapped that knife for a tank, basically. <laughs> a nuclear warhead. <laughs> yeah, and it's, unfortunately, the, uh, the the Dogs just sat down and rolled over. So, mm. now look, crazy stuff. It's only the fourth time in AFL-VFL history two sides have overturned six-goal deficits in the same round, and it's the Cats. Within biggest... a couple of days as well. Well, exactly, and, and the biggest comeback for the Cats since 1931. This game encapsulates how inconsistent the Dogs are, though. They kick six goals in the first quarter and three over the next three. I have to say, I'm saddened by how much Tim English has regressed to the mean in recent weeks. And we were big raps for him earlier yeah, in the year. Yeah, he was just taken apart by by Mark Blitzat. So, really great to see an update on Gary Ablett's son, Levi. And I, I just I hope he continues to improve mm. in, his, in his fight. Mm. But again, their midfield shone without him. I'm just saying, I, I honestly believe that... Jordan's... He'll come in handy in the forward pocket come finals time, I guarantee you. Potentially. I guarantee you. 32 touches there for Paddy. He's had another really good season. Port Adelaide, 11-7-73, defeating the Swans, 7-5-47. 31 possessions to Jack Lloyd, not enough. Charlie Dixon kicked four. Papley only kicked one. He was looking like a lock for All-Australian at the start of the year. Now he's out of the team, almost guaranteed. Yep. Yeah, Charlie Dixon, that's pretty much it. Yeah, no, he's look, a beast. Look, a decent fight from the Swans again. They seem to sort of do this where they'll fight really hard, but unfortunately just aren't good enough on just the day. Just undermanned, yeah. But uh, look, 11 tackles inside 50 in the first quarter from the power. That is insane forward pressure. And it really hurts me to see the two backup Ruckman from the Eagles playing so well in Sinclair and Lysette. <laughs> of course. But one, my big question from this, how the hell did Zach Butters not end up done for the season with his leg buckling? That was one of the most bizarre runs I've ever seen. Like, it looked like a baby foal that had just been born finding its feet. Yeah, but at least the baby foal's got a, an excuse. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> it's, but that's like that's the best example I yeah, can Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's quite a good one, actually. I, I just don't know how his knee didn't go. It doesn't make any sense. Matty Tabiner still has kicked a goal in every game this week. He had two, but four apiece for Jeremy Cameron and Jake Riccardi. 31 touches for Lockie Whitfield. All but ends. Fremantle's finals tilt. But let's face it, that was uh, ended a while ago, I think. Probably, yeah. Look, this was the giant side that I had winning the premiership at the start of the season. Riccardi's just come out of nowhere, though. I don't know how many teams... In fact, I think every team passed up on him at least once or twice in pre-season drafts. Mm, so mm. it's making them all look really, really silly. The only real sour note for them was Josh Kelly's concussion, which I mentioned before. A couple of key talking points, though. GWS's holding tactics with Nat Fife around the center square. There was one point where I believe it was Coniglio actually wrapped him up around the waist and dragged him down to the ground. No free kicks. Mm. 
Certainly no special treatment for Nat Fife this week. No, you'd expect a Brownlow medalist to get looked after a little bit better than that. Mm. And the other thing as well, though, was the Toby Green punch. Ah, oh, mate. Just when I start to like him, he does this stupid stuff. Yeah, and look, he's give, so frustrating. I mean, given all the precedents from Tom Lynch, I guess a fine was pretty much what he should have got. So he got a thousand dollar fine for that. But yeah, you're right. Just when you think he's I'm starting to soften, you know. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Anyway, good to see the Giants back playing decent footy. He can't help himself. And look, I got to say, when we were talking about our favourite Indigenous players last week, I neglected to mention Michael Walters Sonny Sonny Walters my girlfriend was very quick to tell me that after she listened (laughs) last week so sorry sorry about that baby Uh, yes he is a magnificent player and obviously it wasn't an exhaustive list you know we didn't talk about Andrew McLeod winning Norm Smith's and Brownlow's I don't think or Morris Rioli I saw in the 83 state of origin game and I can totally see why people from our parents generation bang on about him because he was absolutely magnificent in that game so yes we talked about some of our favourites, but I did miss. So sorry. Sorry to Speak miss. Speak for yourself. I was exhaustive after I did all the research. So. <laughs> Four huge goals to Christian Petrarca. One where he had blokes hanging off him left, right and centre. 26 possessions to Clayton Oliver. Saw the D sneak over the line. 8-4-52, defeating St Kilda 7-7-49. But not without another goal line controversy. Yeah, look, cracking game of footy on a Saturday night. Christian Petrarca continues to hunt down Lockie Neal in Brownlow contention, honestly. This is one of the most influential 15-touch games you will ever see. So, yeah, as you alluded to as well, there was a bit of controversy here. His effort in the fourth with three guys hanging off him, holding them off, snapping while being tackled, and the ball bouncing right on the goal line and potentially being touched. I think it was probably it was just past the, yeah. the line. But, it was a goal yeah. for mine. How about the AFL not actually taking the technology up there for the one game? Pretty mm. disappointing. Mm. Tell you what, Stephen May was sensational for the Ds too. He held Max King to three touches and one goal for the game. So mm. a very, very good effort for him. What do you think Melbourne's chances are? They've got Sydney, Fremantle, GWS and Essendon to finish things off. Oh, I, as I've said for months now, that game against Essendon could decide the finals. Mm. The final you, makeup. I think it's looking more and more right the, the further it goes. But they'd have a very good chance with that slate of games. Mm. Absolutely. In the Crisp Crips Cup... Five goals to zero in the second <laughs> half, including two from Mason Cox. He's back. Saw the Pyres creep back into sixth place. Collingwood, 10-12-72, defeating the Blues, 7-6-48. Oh, this looked like it was going to be Carlton's day for a while. It did, didn't just, it? Yeah. You cannot win games scoring four points and a half. Collingwood might not do much in September or October or whenever the finals go. But look, a lot of this is going to depend on whether they can get Sidebottom, Trelaw and Dugowie back in time for an elimination final. This was the game, though, that evened up the wins. For, so Collingwood and Carlton, I think, have both won 127 games in their times playing. Ah, oh, the head-to-head. That's with, cool. with four draws. That's a great stat. Mm. And then finally, Gold Coast got played back into form by North Melbourne. Four goals to Alex Sexton on return and a best-on-ground performance for Ben Ainsworth. Saw the Suns win their first game since Round 7. 12-19-91, North Melbourne 4-4-28. Jesus. I mean, great to see Gold Coast finally get back in the winner's circle, but... 31 scoring shots to 8, 27 to 11 in stoppage clearances, 15 to 4 marks inside 50, and North Melbourne 27% efficiency inside 50. <sighs> they're, mm. they're barely a VFL side at this stage. Mm. But yeah, Ben Ainsworth and Noah Anderson led the way for the Suns. We're two now for the Roos, honestly. If you have a question for the Sport Blokes, email them sportblokes at gmail.com or find them on Twitter at sportblokes. Please also like, rate, and subscribe. Tell your friends. 
All right, Stewie, another massive week. We've come to the end. What are you apt for? I mean, how could you possibly go past Denver Utah Game 7? Absolutely. That series deserves a double overtime thriller to finish things off. But We can only hope. Yeah. And in the AFL, I think the Giants and the Blues. I think that'll be an absolute beauty. I'm going all in on Jazz Nuggets. I look forward to watching Game 6 tonight, and I really hope it's one of the games ESPN shows. Until next week, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes.